0: Following is an audio recording of Professor Paula Araya's address to the Domestic Dharma Symposium: Cleaning Cloths, Poetry, and Personal Buddhas, delivered at the Institute of Buddhist Studies on September twenty second, two thousand twelve. For a video of this talk, please visit podcast.shin-ibs.edu. Thank you, David, and thank you all for being here this morning. It's a little early, perhaps. Um, I'm so happy to be here among among all of you. And I'd like to begin by um, dedicating this talk to a friend, Dr. Susan Kuhner, who's one of the co-authors of a text, The Language of Healing. I had met her back when we were both in Vanderbilt uh, over a decade ago. And it's four women who wrote about their experiences of breast cancer from four different stages. And I wanted, I thought maybe we'll finally see each other after more than a decade and told her about this talk on a long phone message. And I got a response last night, just real quick. Um, She lives here in Alameda, um, but she's resting at home now. because she's had a recurrence. So I'd like to dedicate this to her. Each time Honda san comes back to her studio apartment, I notice she calls out, Tadaima, I'm home. She is engaging in a common Japanese family greeting, reserved for those coming in and out of their home. Honda-san, however, lives alone. She is addressing the photos of her parents on her homemade bureau top Buddhist altar. They passed away over three decades earlier, yet they are still her family. Her heart hears their response. Nasai, your return home here is welcomed. Hunda-san transformed an ubiquitous household greeting ritual into a healing ritual. With each greeting into the empty apartment, she knows she is not alone. The ritualized exchange of words coming and going from home are not usually recognized or engaged in as a healing ritual. It is especially hard to see the possibilities through the stilted English rendering your return home is welcomed. It does not capture the emotional content of the phrase for there is no English equivalent for the verb. The verb kaidu is reserved for returning to the place where one belongs. It elicits the sentiments of warmth and acceptance, warts and all. It is encoded with the affirmation, you are safe here. Indeed, if it were not for meeting in her home, I would never have known it had occurred. After I was sure it was a regular practice, I asked Honda-san what it meant for her to engage in this common ritualized exchange and to confirm if my understanding of the practice was on target. She was quite comfortable discussing the matter and she gave no indication there was anything out of the ordinary to vocalize her part of the exchange while knowing the other part could not be given in kind. With a sense of -of matter-of-factness, she explained, in my home, I have my parents' pictures. I give flowers, water, and food. When I leave, I ask them to take care of the house. And I say, mas. I'm leaving and I'll be back. End quote. I have done this since living on my own. I have not felt a sense of loneliness. In contrast, Honda-san reflected when her mother was alive, they were in different places. She felt her mother was not there. So death has the effect of bringing her mother closer because her mother now can be with her everywhere. No one taught her to do this common domestic greeting as a practice to help her integrate the loss of her parents into her life. Yet that she adopted this homemade healing ritual is testimony to her ritual mastery. This simple ritual enables her to experience her interrelatedness on a daily basis. It is also part of what helped her change her perspective on her life. She does not feel alone. Although she had boyfriends after finding her mother's body limp from a sudden and fatal heart attack, she never felt interest in marriage. At 25, to go against the strong current of expectations that a good woman marries required clarity about the meaning of her life. She resolved the tensions by nurturing herself, enjoying life, and cultivating gratitude for what she has. Honda-san prefers a simple life and lives carefully within her means. This enables her to be generous and graceful in helping others as need arises. Whether it is cooking for an ill friend, caring for nieces and nephews, or listening as a colleague turns to her for support as they struggle with doubts and frustrations. She is conscious. If she had a family of her own to tend, she would not be able to be there for others as readily or as often, being able to provide that kind of help to people gives her a deep sense of meaning. Her role in society is to be the aunt, who can be there to serve when needed, and she is needed by many. Her parents are her personal Buddhas, from whom she receives support for her healing. In turn, they enable her to help others. Her simple makeshift bureau top altar is the vehicle that helps facilitate this healing activity. Honda's homemade healing ritual includes the qualities found in domestic dharma. It it ingeniously weaves traditional ritual elements with personal need. This sphere of Dharma practice has not received much scholarly attention because practices done by individuals and families in their homes are by their very nature hidden from public view. When domestic Dharma practices are not made up by individuals tending to the intimate details of their own healing, They are transmitted orally through largely informal networks of personal relationships. Thus, they are not recorded in the written documents that researchers typically examine. As a result, the private Buddhist observances performed in the home setting have escaped scholarly notice until recently. In order to gain access and insight into the domain of domestic Dharma in contemporary Japan, it was essential that I employ qualitative research methods that were founded upon ethical considerations. Highlighting the activities and experiences of women takes us to the core of domestic Dharma. For oftentimes women are the center of the family especially when it comes to daily tasks, crises, healing, and ritual practices. That their practices draw on several sources and traditions is due to the nature of Buddhism in the home. The nature of family life is that things invariably come up that were not anticipated and could not be controlled. The women then, in responding to the needs of their families, must be flexible and creative. They must respond to very specific situations and needs. So the results are tailored and not uniform across families. They are rarely dictated from above and therefore do not reflect a concern for observing or maintaining traditional doctrinal or institutional boundaries of Buddhism. These domestic rituals, however, do reflect The core aim of Buddhist practice, to cease suffering. They are encoded with the wisdom of our interrelatedness. Therefore, engaging in these rituals is an act of compassion. They can be done by anyone, anytime, anywhere, on the run, or on the verge of falling apart. My personal journey into the heart of healing rituals took root on December 18, 1996, the day my mother died. That cold gray afternoon in Nashville, after months of listening to the whir of the oxygen machine that provided continual relief to my mother, a vacuum of silence filled her bedroom. Even though I had known that she would die soon, when I actually stood at the threshold of life and death, I felt like one wrong move would send us off into an abyss of despair. The last several months had been one long fear of wrong moves. Too much morphine or not enough. Too much talking or not enough. Not enough water or too much. But this time no hospice nurse or doctor could advise us. Suddenly all the palliatives that had been the source of comfort seemed harshly out of place. Hands shaking in disbelief I cleared the bedside table of the vials of aquamarine liquid morphine, anti-nausea salve that was applied behind the ear, and pink star-shaped sponges for removing sticky mucus from the tongue. Then the ultimacy of the moment crashed upon me. How do I assure her safe passage through this perilous transition? Kito-sensei said to call her. The elderly Zen nun had helped my mother and me over the last nine years freely applying her healing balm of compassion. Thank goodness it was the middle of the night in Japan. Although she devotes long days to ministering others at 3.45 a.m. she would be at her old wooden temple where she nurtures the Bodhi tree seeds she brought back from India. The cordless phone in my hand was a lifeline. I knew in my head that Soto Zen rituals recognized the deceased as a Buddha, but it was Kito Sensei in her unheeded worship hall 10,000 miles away who guided me through those terrifying, disorienting moments. Trusting her to know what to do, I followed her instructions on performing the ritual of safely sending off a person on their journey of death. Rushing about, frantic to treat our new Buddha properly, I found the bronze plum blossom incense burner, sandalwood incense sticks reserved for reverencing Buddhas, white candle and plain wood-carved figure of Kannon, goddess of compassion, adding some white chrysanthemums I had kept on hand, sensing they would soon be needed the bedside table was transformed into a mortuary altar. It had been more, not more than 10 minutes since my mother had breathed her last. As I offered a stick of incense in honor of her, I saw that her face had relaxed into a peaceful smile that I had so often seen on images of Buddhas a relationship was transforming before my very eyes. Are you my mother? When I placed the incense into the burner, I became one with all who had done so before. In the moment that had threatened to be the loneliest in my life, I experienced instead a profound connection with all grievers, from the distant past and into the endless future, I was not alone. I was united with everyone who had lost a loved one. Kito sensei had guided us safely through this critical transition with a wisdom that transcended barriers of space, time, life, and death. At that moment, my understanding of ritual's power to heal became a visceral reality. Immersion into the heart of grief is painful, but these are the raw moments in which healing rituals thrive. Healing happens at the intersection of deepest despair and highest ideals. The death of a loved one is experienced as an experience we inevitably face in our lives. Many of us seek healing from such staggering events that leads to psychic, emotional, and physiological adjustments. One's body and brain must grow accustomed to regulating in this new context. Since rituals require bodily activity, they help a person find their new balance and a new mode of relating to a loved one who has passed on. Funerary and memorial rites specifically help people integrate loss into their lives, for grieving rituals enable people to face the excruciating pain of loneliness that threatens to paralyze them as they transform their lives after the death of a loved one. Specifically, Japanese Buddhist mortuary rituals help a person live with death by helping one experience being interrelated to everything. My findings are based upon in-depth field data that women revealed about their relationships with the deceased in contemporary Japan. Through their willingness to expose their vulnerabilities and loneliness to scholarly inquiry, I began to see that the intimate relationships they carry on with deceased loved ones is not only the context for, but perhaps also the source of the healing power of the rituals in which they engage. The home altar, or butsudan, is not only the site where most ritualized interaction with deceased loved ones occurs. It is also seen as the anchor of the home. Its weight helps maintain stability in times of turmoil. It provides a spatial location for the heart of the family. Whether the altar is an elaborate gilded one in a designated Buddhist altar room, or it is a picture on a bureau, with just a simple cup of tea offered. It can be effective in helping focus and ground healing activities. The home altered centered on the dead as a personal Buddha is a presence that enables cultivating relationships and healing. Indeed, the altar's very physicality facilitates facing difficult situations because it helps people focus their attention in a place where they feel understood and supported. The support and understanding is experienced because the Buddha in their home altar is often a family member. The Buddha in the home altar is not thought to be omniscient, but this Buddha is thought to know all that is important to the one making the offerings at the altar. The deceased becomes an enlightened person, personal healer for their loved ones. This personal Buddha knows one's deepest level of honne, or private self. When both were alive, it was not possible for one person to know another's honne in regard to all things. The vantage point of death, however, enables the deceased to know completely. Furthermore, becoming a Buddha means that the deceased has become a wiser and more compassionate version of his or herself. In life, shortcomings, idiosyncrasies, and various tensions and misunderstandings make it difficult to see another clearly. But in death, the person can become a personal Buddha to the survivors. More than one woman even confessed, after over a dozen of hours of interviews albeit, that she gets along better with her mother now <laughs> that her mother is dead. <laughs> I'll confess, I'm included, okay. Indeed, maintaining a home Buddhist altar seems to be a virtual inoculation against overwrought fear of death. For recognizing the deceased as personal Buddhas means the living and dead are not separated. The concept of personal Buddha takes the teaching of interrelatedness and stretches it across the illusory boundaries of life and death. Intimate relations people have with their personal Buddhas function to dissolve the delusions of separate entities. The transformation of the relationship between the living and the dead is concretely fostered through offerings, chanting, prayer, and conversation made at the home altar. They validate the deceased as a Buddha each time they make the offerings that are reserved for Buddhas. Being able to interact with deceased loved ones in the familiarity of one's own home helps one maintain a sense of intimacy and continuity. Therefore, especially for a person who lives alone, talking to those at the altar, even while it is partially an unreasonable act, is a healthy activity. Consciousness studies suggest such imaginary interactions might help people survive the debilitating effects of loneliness. A lay nun, and um, in here invoking Lisa's what she will be telling us next time about the boundary-crossing categories of lay and uh, monastic, and um, in the home and the temple. I work with Yoko Sensei. Another woman who crosses these boundaries of lay and monastic, though, she stressed, if you don't know loneliness, you won't know the deepest flavor of gratitude. These rituals do not prevent loneliness, but they do help these women continue to function. Being in the home, such ritualized activities facilitate transforming the relationship of the living and dead in a manner that integrates the loss in a life-affirming manner. People continue to interact, so the divide between life and death is immaterial. Many people explained how in times of need they turned to their loved ones at the altar for they are the ones who understood them most. The women added that they had an even greater expectation for help now that their loved ones are dead because they are Buddhas. Updates on developments and problems usually accompanying the morning or evening greetings. Of course, gratitude is duly expressed when it is clear that their personal Buddha has helped solve the problem. When the dead are recognized as personal Buddhas, it enables the healing of the survivors. Through engaging in memorial and ancestral rituals, the living can find support and understanding in a way that is not readily available through other means. For these personal Buddhas and home altars are specifically focused on taking care of them in a direct and intimate way. These Buddhas know all their secrets and idiosyncrasies. There is nothing hidden and nothing for which to be ashamed. They allow a person to amae, that is, one can be purely dependent on her personal Buddha with no need to calculate how much is being received versus how much is being offered, that is, past, present, and future. The relationship with one's personal Buddha is liberating, for you also do not need to consider that what you say, do, or think might have negative ramifications due to things being taken out of context and used against you in the future, a possibility when dealing with living people. Another way that interaction with personal Buddhas heals is the acceptance and understanding they give even though they know all your faults and weaknesses. There is no pressure to be good and hide your faults with personal Buddhas. They love you as you are. You can relax and be. One woman, Nagai-san, even finds her bo- personal Buddha more effective than professional psychologists. Quote, when I've spoken to psychologists, it seems like I am talking to a wall. Granted, she probably didn't have the grass psychologist, but it makes me wonder if my feelings have been understood because they do not get upset. But they must do that as professionals. End quote. These mundane rituals belie the profound insight that grieving never ends. It just changes with the seasons. And here we are, the autumnal equinox, another moment in the flow of change. These rituals also illustrate how healing is available in the home through the dead as personal Buddhas. The home altar functions like an attentive and compassionate person. Indeed, one woman explains that it is like a part of the family. Each important event is recounted at the butsudan as well as everything the family has received over the years. This is a common practice where gift items and significant purchases are placed on or near the altar for a time before they are used, eaten, or put away. It is an expression of gratitude that also creates the sense that personal Buddhas are in part the source of the good fortune as well as continue to share in the fortune of the family. Understanding the centrality of the home Buddhist altar in domestic Buddhism is illuminating. The altar creates a ritual space in the home that most families can directly connect to several generations back. Those with contemporary stresses and challenges still find succor in attending its rituals. A home Buddhist altar does not only provide the physical space for ritualized action, it creates a space of meaning. Delineating a space that is designed for thoughtful reflection and cultivating gratitude does not merely allow one to reflect and be grateful, it inspires one to do so. It affirms that such activity is worthwhile and important to do, as important as activities that demand regular attention, like putting a meal on the table or getting the laundry hung out to dry. The home Buddhist altar also enables a space where the limitations of the passing of linear time are suspended, facilitating the passing of boundaries of life and death. The virtual space also protects one in a space where it is safe to feel otherwise terrifying emotions. Instead of such emotions immobilizing one, When experienced in the safe haven of the home altar, one can feel their full force and watch as they transmute into empowering clarity or calm acceptance. Personal Buddhas understand one deeply, but they are not omnipotent. In the words of one of the elder women who helped with this research, Quote, I don't feel that they will just take care of my problems. I feel that they look with warmth and affection. I do pray they help things move in a good direction, though. End quote. The ritual practices of making offerings, chanting, and praying on a regular basis are the resources that fuel their resilience and strength. Though they appear to be simple rituals requiring no officiant and done in the privacy of their own crowded homes, these rituals form the framework within which they take these tremendous challenges of the human spirit and weave compelling tapestries that empower themselves and inspire others. Yamaguchi san reflected back to an earlier time in her marriage. When Obachan, grandma, first moved in, I vowed to myself that I would make a home that was better for having my mother in law live with us. Obachan was a very devout Buddhist. She chanted at the altar every day. She taught us all many things. I was grateful that my children grew up in a home with three generations. To hear these women tell it, the challenges of caring for a person who gradually degenerates over several years are cumulative. The realization that an elder is no longer capable of doing something on her own is slow in the making because of the desire on everyone's part for the person to be strong and healthy. It is also a matter of respect when you are caring for an elder. It is often imperceptible when the power shifts and the younger generation needs to be assertive and take the lead. There is no formal ritual recognizing this change that requires all parties to cultivate a new identity. In the shuffle, dignity, pride, and confidence are lost to the elder. While patience is often lost to the caregiver. Such was the case of Yamaguchi san. She lived in a three generational home with her mother in law, referred to as Obachan. Everyone called her by this affectionate term for grandmother because she filled her role as eldest female in the home with reliable and endearing warmth and kindness. Her daughter-in-law brought her own refined senti- sensibilities with her to the marriage but she deeply respected Obachan's profound level of attainment Obachan had been a model of the quintessential embodiment of elegance grace and kindness she spoke in keigo the most respectful form of japanese all the time yet on her lips unlike the way in which it might sound on the lips of others It was not out of place in the kitchen, or at the family dinner table. Her humility was not put on for public appearances. It reflected the core of her beauty and strength. As Obachan aged, however, she went from this refined mode of being to refusing to change her clothes after soiling them from a toilet accident even when her grandson's friends complained about the stench in their home. The Shinto-based focus on purity makes such a predicament untenable. After several years of this predicament, tensions and stubbornness reached seismic levels. A sharp butcher knife was drawn and aimed. Threats targeting the old woman's last ounce of self-respect were fired. The daughter-in-law exercised the tiny remainder of respect for her beloved mother-in-law by leaving the house. Although leaving a demented 97-year-old woman alone in the house was not necessarily safe, it was safer than if she had stayed. She had exhausted her patience years ago. Now her own grip on reality had snapped. Desperate, she knew she had to get help for herself. She went to the person she knew who would be able to help her. She sought counsel from a Buddhist nun, confessing that she had held a butcher knife up to Obachan. The nun listened deeply and did not judge her. She showed that she understood how these situations could be so difficult. Instead of using words for ethical instruction, she employed listening. And silence to empower the daughter in law to continue to care for Obachan. With a new sense of possibility, the daughter in law returned home. She began chanting at the Butsudan as Obachan had done every day. She also started doing Shakyo sutra copying practice, copying the Heart Sutra. When she hung the laundry, she tried not to think about anything else but hanging the laundry. Just cook when cooking. She tried to see the beauty in the moment and have fun. The full story cannot be recounted here, and there were difficulties yet to face. But the woman had a transformational experience in being heard by the nun. Being heard yet not judged on some abstract code of moral conduct that knew nothing of her struggles was the key to her healing. Precisely because the nun did not put ethical behavior on center stage, she was able to help the woman behave more ethically. The nun encouraged ritual practices that helped the woman sustain her equilibrium. Integrating these rituals into her life helped her sustain herself and her family, including Obachan. Another story highlights the ingenuity of a woman in the face of a dire medical diagnosis. Doctors told Kimura-san, a humble and devout Buddhist woman in her late 60s, that her cancer was beyond their treatments. Her petite elderly frame and gentle humility belied her inner strength. She fully believed that the Tenegui traditional cleaning cloth given to her by an abbess would heal her. To Kimurasan, this was no common cleaning cloth. Unlike the hundreds she had used over her near seven decades of life, this one had the calligraphy of the abbess and the image of a figure with hands held in prayer, commissioned by the abbess, printed on it. It is important to know that the exchange of tenogui cloths is ubiquitous in the gift-giving culture of Japan. Everyone must give and receive gifts so often that practical gifts are preferred. Food and cleaning supplies like soap and towels are among the most common. The abbess had these traditional cleaning cloths made so she would have something useful to give to people. She thought that many might not actually clean with it, but might use it for special occasions, handling special dishes. She did not imagine that they would be used for healing. Kimura-san, though, believed that the tenugui cloth had the power to purify her body. She lay in bed with one cloth on her pillow and one on her legs, the location of the cancer. Now, well, last summer she passed away but 10 years, when I wrote this, it had been 10 years, she was still farming her organic garden and mixing medicinal herbs for everyone's ailments, from mosquito bites to arthritis. Doctors, so this is 1990. I haven't read this through since I realized she passed away. Um, Anyway, she lived a good dozen years, 15 after this. Doctors could find no traces of cancer in her body. She has a twinkle in her eye as she leans over and touches me on the arm saying, it's true, paula that cloth cured me. In this case, the method of healing was not traditional. It was not even intended by the maker and giver of the cloth. The only observable conclusion is that the meaning with which the receiver of the cloth endowed the cloth had an efficacious power when it was placed on her body. Regardless of the mechanics of this unpretentious, ritualized use of the Tenagoi cleaning cloth, the gratitude and joy that women, the woman experienced was genuine. After learning of this occurrence, others in the community have used the cloth in a similar way and report positive results. This is a new ritual initiated by a devout Buddhist laywoman. In addition to creating ritual spaces and activities in the home, the creative practice of contemplative arts is also a common dimension of domestic dharma. The most popular contemplative arts include calligraphy, flower arranging, tea ceremony, and poetry writing. Each of these arts can be approached as part of healing, though each art has its own specific dynamics of healing. I will focus here on poetry. Writing poetry in a healing mode involves perceiving things in terms of their connections to the greater whole, finding beauty in little things in daily life, and distilling in one's heart and expressing it in a poem. To do so requires living body-mind, which involves an effort to be fully present in the here and now. It is easy to get distracted and lose touch with one's current condition by dwelling in a preferred past or a desired future. Ume san one of the women who generously shared her hard-earned wisdom with me, explains how writing poetry helps her embody the present. Quote, when someone dies or something big happens, and I see something like the butterfly working so hard, I think, is there some way of putting that into words? Working hard trying to express it helps me get absorbed in the moment. This heals my heart, End quote. What heals is being absorbed in something occurring at that moment, which she says helps her set the grievous occurrence within a web of cosmic connections. The following are several of Ume Murasan's poems written at times of emotional intensity. The first of a series of three captures when she went to her birth mother's side, knowing her passing was not far. She was raised by another mother. The fact that her mother had abandoned her at birth was a source of deep lifelong pain for Ume Murasan. Well, into adulthood the pain remained raw. Although she tried to keep it hidden from view. It is with all those emotions that she reflected back to the 10th day before her mother passed. This is her poem. Gratitude flowing from her 10 days before going on. My birth mother's joy. Composing this poem helped Ume Murasan feel her mother birth mother's joy upon seeing her daughter before her death. It also helped Ume Murasan recognize gratitude in her birth mother. Crafting the poem was a potent vehicle for Ume Murasan to cultivate her own gratitude, the kind of gratitude that heals old wounds. Moistening the lips of the newly departed is a ritualized activity that expresses care for the person who is beginning their journey. For Ume Murasan, not just any water will do for her birth mother. She turns this ritual into a healing ritual as she makes connections with her youth, washing away the years of pain she did not have with her birth mother. The healing deepens as she finds the words to capture the significance of the moment. Her poem, I went to fetch water from the village where I spent my youth, still warm, moisten mother's lips. The first night after a person breathes their last, loved ones stay together with the deceased keeping incense lit. White clothing, especially for the end, mark the change. Everyone gathers at the threshold of death, for it is a momentous occasion when impermanence is palpable. In that liminal space, emotions course through in potent quietude of deep darkness, a chance for hearts to be cleansed. Her poem. A fleeting night of passing vigil. In the pure quiet, get the white clothing. Unable to stop the suffering of the disease. Purifying tears. Poetry writing was a deeply healing aesthetic activity for Ume Murasan at the passing of her birth mother. And it has helped her as she faced other life challenges as well. Upon her pilgrimage, itself a healing activity, she amplified the healing experience with her poems. She begins with solidifying her intentions and hopes, including the phrases that distinguishes this pilgrimage as the Shikoku Island 88 Temple Circuit. Walking two together. Refers to a pilgrim metaphorically walking with the great Buddhist master Kukai from the eighth century more commonly known by his title Kobo Daishi. Her poem, along the way regrets and sadness should be purified so I went on a journey walking two together. Ume Murasan, however knows in her heart that the two referred to in her poem can be read two ways. One is the obvious traditional meaning telling the reader she is in Shikoku, but the other meaning is carried in her heart as she walks through the first temple's gate. Passing through the gates of Ryōanji Temple, my deceased mother's dream of 20 years, crying as I walk. As her journey continues, her walking also changes. Even as she makes connections with others, she finds herself and learns how to live. I put a letter to a Buddhist friend in the post box. I want to be alone. Walking, I become me. At Jizoji Temple, I again receive kind offerings. As I receive it, I think, this is how to live. Walking along slowly, the two of us together, I feel Dharma connections, flowers, beautiful. Bestowing full bloom flowers, take evening meal. Inside joy, I become today's me. Perfectly cleared up, I take in the morning chill on my skin on a road for one and a half li, gratitude flowing as I walk. Writing poems helped Ume san go deep into the present moment and see a bigger context and deeper connections. She could see herself differently. After walking alone, she saw herself rejoined, walking too. The alone time helped her become herself joy and gratitude renewed her connections. Ume san had found what she was looking for, the buoyancy that comes from being grateful, a sign of her healing. Writing in the poem, writing the poems helped her to be clear to herself as she ushered in these changes in her heart. Ume sans poems reveal the path of her healing. Reading them later, she will then be able to retrace her journey. What emerges from an examination of these women's aesthetic practices is a particular understanding of beauty-making as healing. It engages the principles of their way of healing, which holds that if one is focused on acting from one's heart-mind, beauty and healing can permeate daily life. They engage the same mindfulness and aesthetic sensitivities required of the practices examined above to domestic tasks, tasks, including hanging laundry, cooking, serving food, cleaning floors, and washing dishes. When they do them as beauty-making activities, they become healing activities. Beauty-making is a positive choice. It is a choice to perceive and approach something in its wholeness where its deepest beauty is illumined. Beauty also sustains through its capacity to soften rough spots in the heart, enabling one to be more flexible in living with the present circumstance. Once one is aware of beauty in one's midst, it works as an antidote to bitterness, and it stops calcification in the heart. It acts as a solvent that loosens debris in the heart One's heart would close up as one sought protection from harm. A closed heart gets stuck in a time or situation because by nature, to the extent that it is closed, it is shut off from what is currently going on. Since an open heart is required to be present, beauty helps one heal by encouraging one to recognize that one is safe to open up. Beauty can then engage one further in the fullness of the present moment in which one can recognize oneself as an integral part, a participant, not a victim. Perceiving beauty is an act of recognizing the value of something. In so doing, it awakens the beauty in oneself to one's bigger nature. In these ways, beauty helps one feel deeply connected. These up-close and personal images of Buddhism on the ground demonstrate that family practices are complex, ritualistic, and focused on the health and well-being of family members. The empirical information reveals the concerns, practices, and characteristics of domestic Dharma. Most notable is that women are at the center of this realm. In order for these women to respond to the complex and changing needs of their family members, including themselves, they engage in a range of practices that enable them to stay strong, even as they enter the eye of a storm. It is critical that these women find ways to sustain themselves, for they undergird their families and seek to support their deepest needs. The practices of domestic dharma incorporate a range of activities including attending the home altar, artistic expressions, laundry, cooking, cleaning, participating in elaborate temple rituals designed to protect the family, and applying a healing cloth to cancer. The practices that revolve around the home altar include chanting, offerings, and praying. The sound of the bells and wooden drum reach family members not directly involved in the ritual. The incense also carries throughout the home. These help create an atmosphere that invites people to remember life is meaningful and that one is not alone. There is support. One woman strategically times these rituals so family members will hear them as they leave in the morning and she talks about you know how she's chanting and saying don't forget your lunch don't forget your keys <laughs> <laughs> the most common chants that are done when under duress or on the run are Namo Amida Butsu or "Namu Kannon Riki praise to the power of the goddess of compassion these chants make the women immediately feel they are not alone even as they feel helpless to take pain away from a child who broke an arm on the playground, or clear the confusion of an elder. Such a practice is woven into the fabric of their daily lives. They do not take extra time, money, or energy, and they they can be done in route rushing to a doctor or while cleaning up after toilet accidents. Characteristics of domestic Dharma include the flexibility to meet specific needs and the creativity to weave religious practice into daily life. Flexibility and creativity are necessary for family life because the needs of families are complex and ever-changing. Many needs cannot be scheduled or anticipated. Domestic Dharma is full of homemade rituals and supplications for assistance. It does not run like clockwork. It is created new every day. It is full of tears, dirty laundry, and expressions of frustration and fear. Yet its most striking characteristic is that domestic Dharma is propelled by an attitude toward the vicissitudes of life that hones in on the positive and affirming. The practices need be simple, accessible, inexpensive, portable, direct, and immediate. Years of disciplined practice are not required to perform or participate in these practices. Hence, they are accessible even to the busiest person. The simplicity of the practices also helps keep the cost down. Many can be done at home or on the run. But the most important thing is that the effects of a practice are immediate and direct. From calming down in a moment of crisis to being compassionately embraced despite an avalanche of tragedy, to being cured after a terminal diagnosis, these women have found empowerment for themselves and their families in their domestic practices. Ume Murasan sums it up succinctly and wisely Quote, I know I am healed when I am kind. Thank you.